Hello. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. There are so many visitors here, so I thought we'd do something a little bit different. Turn to the person next to you and say, I'm so pleased you got to sit next to me today. Would you do that? Go for it. (laughs) And now do me a favour. Do me a favour. Turn to that person on the other side and say, I'm so sorry I didn't start with you. Would you do that? (laughs) It's very rude of you to do that. You're very welcome. It's great to have you here. You know, it's not possible. I want to I uh, I talk to you about the Bible. It's not possible to consider what the Bible says for any length of time whatsoever, to truly look at it uh, and to consider deeply for yourself what it says before you become aware, without becoming aware, I should say, of a culture clash right at the centre of what the Bible is offering us. Uh, there's, there's a clash between God and people. A clash between God and all people. One of the common mistakes that we can make in uh, what we call modern culture uh, is that we think, well, the Bible is very old, so it must be out of touch, out of step. Uh, It it runs contrary to much of cultural norms and morality because of its age, so therefore, we all know you can't trust old things or old people. We know that. Not you guys, I mean, really old people. Um, and so therefore, that got a lot of laughs at 8.30 where most of the old people are, okay? So they've got a great sense of humour. Um, so because it's old, we can't trust it, it's out of step, it's out of touch, the values that it gives, we need to change it. And what I want to put to you is, as you read the Bible, you become aware that the culture clash at the centre of God's word, it's not about a time and a place, It's not that it's clashing with our culture today. Let me put it like this. The Bible speaks a truth about you and I which clashes deep within us in the same way it has clashed deep within the hearts of every single human being who's ever lived. The culture clash is never-endingly contemporary. Never-endingly contemporary. It never ends. And the clash itself doesn't come from morality. A common mistake is to think that, oh, the Bible is a rule book for life. Follow this, you know, and do this, don't do this. And, then, and that the Bible has a focus, a, a zeroed-in kind of obsession with morality. That's not true. Get that out of your mind. The Bible is not about morality. The Bible, at its core, has a message, a message about God and people, a message from God to people. And it's this message which clashes so firmly with our culture, with our society, but also with us as individuals. And it's a message that has clashed with every culture for all time. And that's exactly what we're looking at today in Genesis chapter 11. What we're going to do today is look at one of the oldest stories in the Bible about really the very first society, the very first culture that's ever existed. And what we'll see is a clash, um, an explosive clash between God and people. You'll see that God, check this out, God values things you don't value. Let me go further. God hates things that you love. That's crazy. He hates things. And he hates many of the things that we instinctively, intuitively love. And yet the other message right at the center of this this book is that this message is not a story of condemnation. It's not a story meant to crush you and make you feel like nothing, but rather a, a story, a message that is pointing us to an eternal hope, a truth, a living hope, something which undoes the clash that we have and actually brings about true harmony, true peace and true unity 
of the true unity that really matters in life. And so today, as we look at the Tower of Babel, they're the kind of things we're going to be thinking about. We're going to be asking a couple of questions. Number one, what is this message that God has given us? What is it that God is saying that is so explosive to our culture? Number two, is it true? Number three, what does it mean in my life if I actually take what God says seriously? In a moment's time, I'm going to open the passage. Well, I'll open it for you right now, actually. In a moment's time, we're going to explain the passage um, and think through those things. But before I do that, I'm going to pray... And before I do that, I want to flag for you that I'm going to give some of, oh, I'm going to offer the opportunity for every single person here today to become a Christian. Of course, most of you are Christians, but there are people here today who aren't Christians. Uh, some of you know that. Some of you don't know that. And yet, at the end of today, I'm going to give you the opportunity to put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to flag that for you now so that you're really listening. If you're not a Christian, you're really listening. You're really considering what it is that God is offering you today to count the cost of, of what it means to be a Christian. So let me pray. Uh, will you bow your heads, pray with me, and then we'll look at this passage together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not distant, disinterested, uncaring. Rather, you speak. Uh, you have relentlessly, unendingly spoken. And Father, we pray this morning uh, that we would actually listen. For some of us, for the very first time, truly hear what you're saying to us. That we would not leave here the same, but changed transformed and growing more and more in likeness of your son Jesus and it's in his name that we pray amen so Genesis chapter 11 have that open in front of you uh, if you have a bible uh, or a phone device whatever it is Genesis chapter 11 is where we're going let me give you a little bit of the historical context Um, chapter 11 is a key point in the history of the bible Uh, it's the end of the first section of um, of Genesis and it's the section just before Abraham comes into play God's covenant with Abraham Genesis chapter 12 and it's just after Noah's ark so you've got Noah's ark the world wiped out one family Noah Three sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth. And then if you've got a Bible there, just flip back over a page or two. Chapter 9, verse 1. God makes a covenant, an agreement with, uh, with Noah. And this is what he says. God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. One family, fill the earth. And then chapter 10 that's exactly what we see happen. There's all these tribes and languages and, and, and different groups emerge. 70 in total mentioned here. That's not, a, that's not the complete number of people, of course, but 70 is a full whole number in the Bible. So all these people emerge around the world. Chapter 11, though, is actually then taking it back a step to explain how did that happen? How did all these nations emerge with different languages and tongues, all from this one family? Uh, so a really important part of our heritage. This is about your family background, no matter where you come from. This is about your ancestors. Um, Now, the Tower of Babel uh, is a story that's reasonably well-known in Christian circles. It's a Sunday school favourite in the holiday period. It's B-roll. You know what I mean? It's not like Noah's Ark, you know. It's not David and Goliath. No one's getting Tower of Babel tattoos or anything, but it's there. It's It's a catchy story. Uh, And yet I want to promise you there's more to it than you may have ever uh, considered or been aware of. Have a look at this together, chapter 11. It's broken up into two parts, um, uh, and it parallels itself in the two parts. By that I mean to say, verse 1 is paralleled by verse 9. Verse 2 is paralleled by verse 8. Verse 3 by verse 7, like an inward staircase, okay? And it's all hinging on verse 5 at the center. Uh, The two halves are man's actions and God's reaction. Let me show you man's actions, verse 1 to verse 4. What we learn uh, very clearly is that after the flood, God told Noah, his sons, to go fill the earth. 
and, and that's what they did. They began to spread out, but they didn't get very far. They stopped at a place called China, not China, okay? China, and that's in modern-day Iraq. Thank you, one laugh, terrific, thank you. Um, and that's, and that's in modern-day Iraq. It's a real place that became known as Babylon. They set all they put down roots. Now, they do then what people have always done everywhere they stop anywhere. They build. They can't stop building. We're told they build three bricks, a city, and a tower. A tower, you see, verse 4, that reaches all the way up to the heavens. Now, this is made particularly easy because they've only got one language. Here is evidence that all people should be speaking English. Here, speaking English. I'm reading it, so it's obviously that's... Thanks, guys. One language. We don't know what the language is. Not English. They're all speaking one language. They can build all these things. Now, just press pause. If you were to summarize verse 1 to 4, the actions of the humans, what are some words you would use? Initiative, um, hardworking, uh, relentlessly dedicated to the task at hand. They, they form bricks out of nothing, you know. It's an astonishing feat of technology in the ancient world. They build this tower. And a side note is to say that this area, uh, there are ruins of many of these towers that Babylon became known as. They're called ziggurats, not cigarettes, ziggurats. And they're towers around seven stories high, very, very high for the ancient world. They're still there, made out of brick, just as the Bible says. However, how does God respond? Verse 5 is the hint, the doorway. The doorway. Check it out. I'll read this for you. Verse 5. But the Lord came down to see the city. And the tower the people were building. Oi, listen. The people believe they're building something that's going to reach the sky. Look at what we've done. This is higher than you could possibly imagine. But verse 5, God can't even see it. He comes down to the city. And the language used here is like a dad crouching down to see their kid's Lego. You know, like, oh, that's nice, son. Great. That's terrific. Lego, ah, ah, and stepping on it, and so on and so forth. <laughs> Humanity believes in its significance, and yet God sees it in comparison to the creation of his word. It's utterly insignificant. But worse still, it's not just that it's insignificant. This is a little bit of a flag, a little red flag for us, that God is more than unimpressed with their actions. He's actually upset. Look at verse 6. The Lord said, if as one people speak in the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. God is angry at what they've done. So what does he do? Well, he doesn't topple their tower. He destroys their power. And you see 9 to 1, 8 to 2, 7 to 3. Okay, you see this parallelism is the literary technique um, unfold. They start with one language, God confuses all the languages. He invents French, boom, there you go, Italian, bang. They want to build a great city, they leave the city unfinished. They want to unite and reach up to the heavens, but God comes down from the heavens in judgment. They want to stay where they are, but God scatters them throughout the earth. Now they've named this city Babylon, and we know that from chapter 10, verse 5. It's founded by a man called Nimrod. Okay, and that means that name means to rebel. Okay, he's the founder of the city Babylon. The name Babylon literally means gateway to God. El 
like Elohim, if you know that, El means God, Bab, doorway, gate. They call it Babylon, but what does God call it? Verse 9, Babel. Now that's a pun. In Hebrew, the word Babel sounds like the word Balal. And Balal means baffled, confused. Oi, we're the doorway to God. Look at us, God. I can't even see it. You are confused. And so we step back from chapter one to nine, sorry, verse 1 to 9 of chapter 11 with the big picture just imprinted so firmly for us, it's undeniable. God undermines and destroys every element, every attempt at success that humanity attempts. See that? Everything man tries to do, God undermines it, undercuts it, destroys it. And it is this message. Now you, listen, listen. It is that this message, this message, which is at the very heart of what the Bible is saying about you and me. You see, this is echoing Eden for us, by the way. This is a new Eden, the new fall. What is the message at the centre of the Bible? It's not morality. It's not be good, get good. Forget that, man. It's not behave yourself and then God will think well of you. Forget it. What is the message? It's a message that is eternally, maybe not eternally, never-endingly controversial, confronting, and countercultural. The message is, you are wrong. You, you, you. You are living life the wrong way. Instinctively, intuitively, your compass is broken. It's pointing the wrong direction. You're wrong. Now, none of us like being told that we're wrong, do we? It's one of those difficult things we have to deal with. And yet I want you to be very, very clear on this, that the Bible is not acting as a set of binoculars. Hey, yeah, yeah, Phil is wrong. That's right. Now, he is, by the way, but it's a mirror. Okay, this is a mirror. You are wrong. You're living life the wrong way. But why? What is it about what we've read in the men and the women, the people of Babel, that is so wrong, that is so offensive to God? After all, let's be honest with one another. If you, had to, um, if you made this into a film, chapter 11, verse 1 to 9, if you made that into a film, at the moment, at this level, who's the goody and who's the baddie? <laughs> Oi, the goody are those poor Babylonians, slaving away, making bricks and whatnot. Who's the baddie? I've read this passage with a couple of blokes over the last few weeks. And it's verse 6 in particular. Did you notice? Verse 6, man, it really confronts our idea of God. Let me read it. God sees the tower and he says, If as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. How does God come off there? Not good. Looks like God is threatened by people. Oh my goodness, look how successful they are. They're going to be like me, like us. We can't, I can't allow that. It appears as if God is petulant, petty, pathetic, small-minded, a bully, who then swoops in to prevent humanity's success. They're united. They're doing the one thing that so many of us think will lead to happiness in life, which is the unity of humanity. 
I have a dream of the brotherhood of man. Imagine, you may call me a dreamer, but we'll all join together as one. The League of Nations, the United Nations. One people, they've got it. And yet God stops it. But why does he do that? Well, here's what you may not be surprised by. There's more to this story than what you may first imagine, what you may first understand. Okay, As we've seen throughout Genesis over the last term, uh, there are multiple layers taking place all the way throughout. There's the context of the story itself. Then there's the context of how it relates to Genesis, the chapter surrounding it. And then there's the context of how it fits within the whole story of humanity that we have in the Bible. So what I want to do is I just want you to, sh- to look at verse 1 to 4 again. And I want to point out several little breadcrumbs we have that all is not what we may first think when we look at the people of Babel. Have a look here. Verse 1, it starts straight away. The world had one language and a common speech. Then we're told people moved east, found a plain in Shana, and they settled there. Now, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you may have picked up a little theme there. What is it? It's that word east, eastward. Okay? When Adam and Eve leave the garden, they're sent to the east of Eden. When Cain murders Abel, he's sent to the land of Nod, east of Eden. Further on, when Lot and Abraham are choosing places to settle down, Lot chooses Sodom, which is eastward. Now, it is symbolic at this point. We need to understand it really happened, but also it has a pattern emerged to it that whenever the word east or people moving eastward emerges throughout Genesis, it's a sure sign that people are moving away from God. Now, that's point one. Number two, what do they do? They settle down. But what did we just hear God tell Noah to do in chapter 9? Do you remember what he said? Have a look. He says, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. These people, they don't even get beyond the first country. They stay where they are. They settle in this land and they put down roots. They immediately disobey God's plan. They immediately disobey God's purpose for them. What do they then do? Well, listen, listen. Verse 4 is the key to us. Verse 4 is the piece of the puzzle that unlocks exactly what's going on. They say, come, let us build a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Why do they do that? So that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now listen, we'll take a breath in one moment, but just stay with me. Listen. What is the motivation behind their actions? They, They build a city. Why? Because they seek security in me, in we, but not he. They build a city because they want to not scatter. They want to be safe. They want to be secure. They want to find their security, not in God, but in self. They build this tower to do what? Not to proclaim the name of the Most High, but in order to make a name for themselves. To build a legacy. To live a life of significance. To be remembered. But the key to all of this in verse 4 is what, or I should say, who is missing. Did you spot who's missing in verse 4? In all that they do, in all they achieve, in all they accomplish, in all their dreams, all their desires, their security, their significance, 
In all that they plan, there is not one mention of God. Their lives revolve around me, not he, me. Number one. Now, listen, what do you make of that? A life that revolves around me, not he. A city built not on God, but on self. It doesn't shock us at all, does it? It feels familiar, doesn't it? It should. Why? Well, consider your own daydreams. Or consider the daydreams of our city, our country, the things that we want, the things that we pour effort and energy into. The very thought of a city being built around God, it's, it's laughable to us in Australia because this is a ridiculous concept. We've got no thought. We build football stadiums and schools and hospitals. But we don't think about God. And yet, according to God, that's the very worst way you can live. Now, there's a word for that. There's a word um, that's not mentioned in this passage, but a word that articulates and clarifies and, 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 and summarizes exactly what we're looking at here. And that word is pride. Pride. Now, pride is a tricky word because it's got two definitions. Uh, one positive, to be proud of achievements, a healthy self-esteem, and that's fine. Okay, but then it's also got a very negative definition. At its very core, pride, when defined negatively, which is where we most often see it, is not healthy self-esteem, exaggerated self-love, arrogance, boastfulness, to think higher of others, sorry, higher of yourself than others, to look down at people. The problem with pride, of course, is it's a little bit like bad breath. You can't smell it, but everyone else around you is like, oh my goodness, this is... And yet pride has infected all of our hearts, of course. It's right there, the, the inner desire to put our own needs above others. When we see boastfulness and arrogance, particularly in Australian culture, it's worth saying, um, none of us like it. You see, other countries use words to describe pride like arrogant, boastful, vain. But Australia has a wonderful term to define someone who's, who's proud. What is it? Up themselves. Oh, we are poets of the English language. So obviously God speaks Australian. <laughs> we don't like it when we see it. When we smell it of others, it stinks. But here's, here's what we've got to understand. God, he values different things than you do. He has different opinions than you do. God does not dislike pride. Let me read you a couple of definitions we have from the book of Proverbs about God's opinion of pride. Check this out. Proverbs chapter 16. Sorry, Proverbs chapter 8. I'll do that first. Proverbs chapter 8 verse 13. This is God's opinion of pride. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Now, we don't think of God hating very often, do we? God hates pride. He hates it. Why? Because he doesn't minimize it like we do. He doesn't excuse it. He doesn't pat it on the head and say, oh, well, it's just confidence. God sees it for what it is. He has a proper appreciation of its power. Chapter 16, verse 18. Pride, Proverbs, pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. Pride destroys everything it touches. Now, we see this play out in a whole bunch of ways. 
it destroys relationships, the relationships that we have in the world with the people that we know. Um, C.S. Lewis, a wonderful writer of the 20th century, he says that pride is at the very core of all sin. It is, it is the number one sin, if you like. It is at the very heartbeat of everything that is evil and wicked and bad in this world. And he's, he's agreed with Martin Luther, John Calvin. The greats agree. Pride of all the sins is the very worst thing. Think about our relationships. What ruins relationships? Greed, resentment, bitterness, frustration... Holding people to a standard by which you would never hold to yourself. Pride. Bubbling away. I don't deserve to be treated like that. I don't deserve to be spoken to like that. And of course that plays itself out. It means that we're continually competitive. Who was talking about running before? And I'm not a runner, but I do remember at high school when I, when I did running, there was always something that would happen during a race that would fill me with extra energy. What was it? When you see someone else fall off, you see someone else fall to the wayside, and you're like, oh, yeah, a burst of, I can do this. We're continually competitive, continually comparing ourselves with others. We're also continually unhappy, discontent. They have it, I don't have it, I want it, they don't, uh, why don't I have it, they don't deserve it, I should have this, they must have, done it. But of course, it's, it's, It's a plague upon humanity, and the example of which is the entire history of the human race. 150 million people have been killed in war, historians estimate. 150 million. 108 million alone in the 20th century. Oh, we are an advanced people. We have evolved wonderfully as a society. We have developed so much technology and science and and intelligence, and we've used it to perfect ways to kill each other. Oh, we're well done. We're amazing. Get a grip. Chronological snobbery is what that's called. The idea that we're somehow different, better, improved. 400,000 people murdered every year. Three times you murder people killed in war. Killed mostly by people they know. What drives that? Power, greed, anger, frustration, resentment. Me, not thee. Me, not we. Me, not he. And you see, that's the very core problem of pride. See, pride doesn't just destroy our relationships with one another. Pride destroys our relationship with God. Now, if you're not a Christian or you're not sure where you're at with God, I want you to hear this. You need to understand this. It's at the very beginning of the Bible. It runs all the way throughout. You exist for God. He made you for himself. You're not an accident. You might be to your parents. You're not to God. You're not a mistake. You're not a fluke. God knows your name and he's known it since before the beginning of the creation of the world. He made you for him. You have a hole in your soul which can only be filled by God. A relationship with God. To bow your knee before him as your king. To know and love him as your father. And yet what does pride demand of us? I don't need God. You see that in the men, don't you? The women. I don't need God. I'll do this on my own. I will fulfill my security. I will find my success. I will establish my legacy, the legacy that really matters. This is what I'm going to do. Verse 4, what does it tell us? Is the secondary um, desire of the high tower. Look, look what it says. Let us build ourselves a tower, a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. 
the heavens at this point in Genesis and all throughout uh, is the dwelling place of God. And so what's driving these people? What's driving the people of Babel? They want to be God. I don't mean be God like religiously, be God like want to be worshipped by others. No, no, no. They don't want to be worshipped by others. That's not necessarily what's driving them. They worship themselves. And that is the heart of pride, my friends. Putting yourself in the position reserved solely for God. Stealing from God the praise and the glory, the honour that is due only to him and giving it to yourself. That is pride. And so understanding all of that, look at verse 6 again. Why is it then that God, why is it that God confuses their language? Why is it that he, he stymies their success? Why is it that he prevents their growth? Verse 6, what does he say? If as one people speak in the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. My dear friends, this is not the petty, petulant display of a God who is threatened by humanity. This is the merciful, gracious outpouring of love of a God trying to stop people destroying themselves. If we do this with multiple languages, can you imagine the evil and wickedness we could achieve with one? We don't have to imagine it. We saw it before the flood. One people, an evil, a wickedness the world had never seen, God destroyed. You see, that is the the root consequence of pride. Pride destroys our relationships, destroys our relationships with one another, it destroys our relationship with God. But worst of all, the consequence of that is it destroys ourselves. As we worship ourselves, me before he, as we think of ourselves as God, At some point, at some time, at a date yet not known to you but known to God, we die. You seen Titanic? Terrible film. Sorry to remind you of it. There's that moment in Titanic where Jack, I believe that's his name, Jack, um, comes to the front of the ship and he stands there. And what does he shout out? I'm the king of the world. I'm the king of the world. And then the ship sinks. And he is dead. He's not the king of anything. Do you see? I'm in control. Me, not he. I'm in control. I don't need you. Security, success, legacy. Me, 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 life, me. Me, me. And then we die. And we face judgment. And we're judged not according to behaviour, okay? Get that out. The behaviour we do is a symptomatic part of the heart. We're not judged according to behaviour. We're judged by whether or not we know and love God. Do you know and love God? And by our instinct, the answer is no. Because all of us engage in this behaviour by instinct and by nature. And so we die, we face judgment and eternal death. So, what does all of that have to do with you? I hope you can see it already. But let me ask you right now. What would it look like for your life if you 
understood these things and applied them to the life that you live. Well, I want to finish, uh, I want to close with two things. When I say close, I don't mean one minute. I mean eight minutes. When I say eight minutes, okay. (laughs) So wake up. Okay. I want to finish with two things. A comfort and a challenge. I'm going to start with the challenge because you'll never understand the good news unless you truly understand the bad news and understand how it applies to you, yeah? So let me start with the challenge that this passage gives to every single one of us. You see, Babel later becomes known throughout the Bible as Babylon. And that may be familiar to you, it may not, but Babylon becomes a real place, okay? And it's located in Iraq today. It's not a city anymore, but the ruins of it are still there. And Babylon, centuries later, becomes a great enemy of Israel. If you know the story of Daniel and the lion's den in the book of Daniel, that's in Babylon. And Babylon becomes known as this wicked kingdom, because it is a wicked kingdom, and God uses Babylon to judge the, 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 the people of Judah, their, misbehavior, their, their sinfulness. And so Babylon comes and destroys Jerusalem. It rips apart the temple and it exiles God's people to Babylon. It then becomes known all the way throughout the rest of the Bible, all the way to the book of Revelation. It becomes known as a symbol, a byword. For what? For the arrogant human heart that says, me, not he. Babylon, Babylon, Babylon. And oi, we've all, the world's seen plenty of Babylons. Yeah. Rome, Athens, London, Paris, New York, Beijing, New Delhi, Assyria, Nineveh. You know, plenty of Babylon, cities that represent God. Sydney, Gosford, city, <laughs> Wollongong. Yeah. But here's the thing. Babylon doesn't only symbolize and represent cities. It represents people. The Bible makes it very clear that you and I have Babylonian hearts. Hearts that are turned in on themselves, away from God. Me, not he. Me, not he. Me, not he. That is our instinct. That is our compass. It's pointing. It's a mirror. It's pointing backwards. <laughs> okay. And whilst I have no doubt if I went and visited your houses, none of you are building little towers of Babel in your backyard. Although we are on the central coast, so who knows? Maybe you are doing that. But we're all building, aren't we? We're all building. We're building towers in our hearts. Towers that seek security in self, success in self, significance in self. Do you understand that? A Babylonian heart, a Babylonian mind, a Babylonian desire. It's within all of us. What are you building? Where are you pouring your efforts and energies into? They're not always bad things. I'm not saying, oh, you've got a secret... You know, drug dealing business. You know, I'm not saying that. Oh, we can turn anything into a Babylonian tower. Family? They're my comfort. They're my security. They're my everything. They're my everything. Their success is what matters. My legacy is through them. Everything. Family. Education. Work. Church. If I do this, then God will look at me. This is who I am. I'm this. I'm reaching to the heavens. I'm finding my... I'm doing this. I'm doing this. And yet God makes it very, very clear that left to our own devices, 
living that way will only ever lead to destruction. A destruction that you may well see within this life, but a destruction that you will definitely feel in the life to come. Which, which part of your life do you daydream about? What is it that you yearn for the most? Delusion, distraction, destruction. They're the consequences. To God, that is the worst thing you can do in life because it cuts you off from him and it points you in one direction, away from him, now and forever. To God, your desire for recognition, reputation, respect, renown, significance, security, success, all of which come from within me, to put ourselves in the place of God, to God, that is the worst thing that you can do. And in the midst of that action, God says, stop. You are wrong. You're going the wrong way. And it's it's very easy at that point for us to go, gee, Christianity, oh, it's so judgy. It's so full on. It's so intense all the time. Why does that? No, 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 no. Don't mishear what God is saying. Yes, being told you're wrong is usually terrible news. Yeah? It's usually something we find very confronting and very, you know, very disgusting, a bad smell to us to know that we've done something wrong. But sometimes being told you're wrong is not the sign of something bad, but actually results in something amazing. Sometimes being wrong is the best news that you can imagine. Not long ago, I read a story of a woman called Wendy Squires. And she's an Australian journalist um, who was feeling ill uh, and went to the hospital, got some scans and went in for the results and was sat down, had one of those phone calls, I can't tell you on the phone, come in. And we sat down and told you the terrible news, you have liver cancer, you're dying. Here are the scans, this is it, it's It's done. And so over the following days and weeks, she put her house on the market, sold it, so she could downsize. She had difficult conversations with people that she'd been putting off. She came to terms with it. She writes, I have cancer, I'm going to die. But then, 17 days later, she was called into the hospital and met with a different doctor. And by the sweat on his forehead, she could tell something was up. This different doctor told her that in actual fact, she didn't have cancer in the liver. They'd made a mistake with her scans. Someone has read her scan as the wrong person's scan. The diagnosis was a mistake. She wasn't dying. (laughs) She never should have been told she had cancer. She didn't have cancer. They were wrong. She was wrong. Because you see, my friends, there's something that's happening in in the whole realm of the Bible here that we need to see. There's something happening within the whole realm of this story that weaves its way all throughout that is part of something much, much bigger. How does the Tower of Babel story end? Verse 9, God confuses our languages. He scatters us across the face of the earth. God dismantles the Babylonian building project. But then chapter 12, if you've got it there, have a look. What does he do in chapter 12, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3? God appears to Abram. And what does he say to Abram? 
I will make you into a great nation. I will make your name great. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God destroys the evil building project of humanity, but instead begins his own project, a new building, but not one that was held in the responsibility of human hands, but rather one built by God, not one full of people trying to reach their way up to God, trying to fill their lives with significance based on achievement and accomplishment and success and all that type of nonsense, but rather a building not made of bricks, but made of people formed not by human success, but by God's grace and mercy and love. That building is a family. We've seen it the last term. Oi. Genesis. One family weaving its way. You see, it starts here. Abram. Joseph. Moses. David. Joseph. And then 2,000 years ago, in a backwater shed, a young woman, impoverished, abandoned by her family probably, <laughs> gives birth to a baby. And his bed is a dog bowl for donkeys. And yet the baby is the very one who created the wood that made that dog bowl for donkeys. Because that baby is the cornerstone of salvation. That baby is the living stone of the new building that God built. Not built of human hands, but built through the death and resurrection of that baby, Jesus Christ. Peter the Apostle, in the second reading we had, it says it like this. As you come to him, the living stone, that's Jesus, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, that's Jesus, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Once you were not a people, now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, now you do receive mercy. Jesus Christ is building his people into a spiritual house, a spiritual society, a new community, a new community, a new society, not built on human achievement, but built on the death and resurrection of him for us. A building project that never is destroyed, one that lasts forever, one that provides real security. Not the fake security we pretend is ours by virtue of our achievements. Get a grip. It all falls apart. Your great-grandchildren will not know your name. Your grandchildren will forget where you're buried. But Jesus Christ tells you you don't need to make a name for yourself anymore. Because he, he has the name above all names. You don't have to prove yourself anymore because he has given it all. He's done it all so you could have it all. And this isn't a building. It's not a club. It's not a secret society. It's a family. 
a family of the living God who brings people into himself, who gathers his people to himself, who gathers those who've been scattered so that every tribe, every tongue can for eternity proclaim glory to God in the highest, glory to the Lord Jesus Christ that we can proclaim his name together. Now, my friends, are you a Christian? Do you want to be? Do you want to be a Christian? Here's what you have to do. You have to do this and this and this. No. Jesus says, anyone who calls upon the name of me, the name above all names, will be saved. If anyone believes in their heart, proclaims in their mouth this faith, they will be saved. My friends, if you want to become a Christian, I want to invite you right now to stop. Throw away your tower. It's made out of tinfoil anyway. It's Lego blocks. It doesn't mean anything. Crush it. Throw it to the side. Be joined in the one that lasts. And if you are a Christian, and like all of us, been drifting and driving, going this way and that, why don't you take this moment right now to recommit yourself to focus in your life on what truly lasts. Not your little tower, but the family God's called you into. So I'm going to pray now. And if you want to become a Christian, you pray along with me inside your head. You become a Christian. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ, that he died for us, not because we're good. He died because we're not. He died not because we achieve and acquire and attain because we're successful with a legacy and security. He died because we are lost. God, forgive me for my sins. I'm sorry for living the way that I've lived. Thank you that Jesus died for me and rose from the dead. Thank you that by trusting in him, I may be forgiven. I may be part of your family. I may be a living stone, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to you. And Lord, for those of us here who are Christians, I pray that you would help us fix our eyes on the things that you say matter, not what we think matters. That we'd stop building our own little towers, but instead fix our eyes on Jesus, the living stone, the cornerstone, the rock of ages, the name above all names. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.